Let's pray now before, uh, as we get started. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your providential care. We thank you for the fun of this week. We thank you for friends. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that your will is good. I pray now as we consider it, you would teach us. We'd submit to it. Your Holy Spirit would attend to your word. Our hearts would be changed. And we begin to see things more clearly. In your name we pray. Amen. Alright. Yesterday, we tore some things down. That Today, we're going to try to reconstruct some things. Um, after yesterday, I don't know if I should ask people to raise hands, but I'm assuming some of y'all felt maybe confused. There was some confusion, possibly. Maybe some people felt a little bit angry. Yeah? You don't have to show, you don't have to show me, but... Like, oh my gosh, he just told me that what I was hearing might not have been the Word of God. That's kind of offensive, right? The things I've been doing, well, they might have been wrong and maybe even egregiously wrong. So maybe you're a little bit angry. And this is what my, just kind of confused, well, what's going on? How do I make decisions now, right? Because I didn't give you a way to make decisions, right? But what I hope you also felt is, if that's right... I might be a little bit freer than I thought. And I mean freedom in a good way. If all of that's really true, and I don't have to seek out this cosmic puzzle about where I'm going to go to school, about what I'm going to do after graduation, about who I'm going to hang out with this weekend, then actually, there's actually a little bit of freedom there. Good freedom. Like gospel freedom. And that's what I hope happens at the end of the day is, you begin to like being a Christian again because you kind of actually, whether or not you're honest with yourself, didn't like being a Christian as long as you thought being a Christian was about figuring out all these signs all the time and being tormented by the perpetual fear that you're not reading the signs the right way. If you're honest with yourself, you don't like that program. I actually want you to like being a Christian again at the end of the day. That's my goal. And my point yesterday was this overall in a sense. Uh, it was really this. You have impressions and you have emotions, and you have feelings about things, and that's not necessarily bad. And it's not even necessarily bad to make decisions based off of those. In fact, in a lot of ways, what I'm going to say today is you should make decisions based off of those. What's bad is to say, those are the Word of God. And that's really what I was arguing against yesterday. And then what I want to do... First today is to address one last point of confusion from yesterday, and it was actually my purpose all along to address this first today. Yesterday I said, you cannot get outside of God's will. And that's true, and I stand by this statement. But I want to do, the first thing I want to do today is kind of pull back the theological curtain a little bit and peek behind it and give you actually kind of the theology behind what we're talking about because this is actually what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches you absolutely cannot get outside of God's will. And the Bible teaches you absolutely can get outside of God's will. And I'm going to show you how we hold those things in tension. Sounds like a big, big task. It is. And, I, and hopefully I'm up for it. Um, but the Bible is and the Holy Spirit always is. So the first thing I want to do is actually give you all some theological terms um, as we kind of deal with this problem. And uh, first of all, you're at Reformed University Fellowship Summer Conference. If you didn't know that, our first word in our title is a statement of our theology. We are the Nerdy Theology Campus Ministry. Um, so you're going to get some theology here. And uh, a great Presbyterian theologian B.B. Warfield said this about people who are kind of antagonistic towards theology. Uh, I've said this before. I've had other people say it to me like, oh, you know, Britton, I know you're asking theological questions. I remember when I was into theology, you'll get over that, right? And I've said that before to people like, oh, and I was wrong. Like, oh, you're just, you're, you're just too into theology and you're not into loving Jesus. Here's what Warfield says about people, about antagonism towards theology. Sometimes we hear it said that 10 minutes on your knees will give you a truer, deeper, more operative knowledge of God than 10 hours over your books. And this is his, what he says. The appropriate response is, what about 10 hours over your books on your knees? 
Why should you turn from God when you turn to your books or feel that you must turn from your books in order to turn to God? Here's what C.S. Lewis says. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience awaits many others. I believe that many who find nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that their heart sings unbidden while they're working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. I want to be fair, but there's a sense, this is a warning. It's not true of everybody. But when someone says, I'm not really into theology, I feel like that's a distraction from the gospel. Most of the time, this is what they mean. This is the subtext. I'm kind of lazy and I'm thinking about starting a cult. That's what that means when you hear those words. (laughs) So here's our theology today. I'm glad y'all laughed at that. I was worried. I was like, this could kill or I might offend everybody. Um, According to the Bible, here's our theology today. There are two wills of God. I'm going to show you that from Scripture. There are two wills from God. There's one you cannot get out of, and there's one you can get out of. The one you cannot get out of is used a certain way and addressed a certain way in Scripture. And the one you can get out of is addressed a certain way in Scripture. And there are consequences for both of those. And the first one, and I believe this is on your outline, is it's called God's decorative will. I was explaining it to somebody yesterday, and they're like, you mean God decorates? And I realized, no, it's not decorative. It's decorative, as in his decrees. So I was glad they pointed out to me that it sounds funny. It's God's decorative will. The way you've also maybe heard it is it's God's secret will or his hidden will. A simpler way to say it is his plan for all of creation. Philippians 1, uh, 11, excuse me, Ephesians 1, 11 teaches us about God's decorative, his secret will. In him we have obtained inheritance, having been predestined. It's in the Bible. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God works all things according to the counsel of his will. You can't get out of that will. Because all things are being used to work out that will at all times. Another place the Bible talks about it is in Daniel 4. Daniel 4.35. It's actually all over the place, but I kind of want to give you all different different places in Scripture. He does, according to his will... Both among, the most, uh, both among the host in heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can stay his hand. Meaning, God does what he's going to do, and no one ever stops him, ever. And he does it in heaven, and he does it on earth, all the time. His secret will, his sovereign plan, the way the Westminster Confession kind of summarizes it for us, is this, in the Shorter Catechism, it's called God's work of providence. His work of providence is His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of His creatures and all of their actions. Here's what it says. That's in the Shorter Catechism. Here's what it says in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Yes, I'm reading Confession from my iPhone. Isn't that cool? Now I'm going to start a church and call it, like, Elevate, and grow out some cool goatee because I'm so hip, right? Come on, y'all. That was kind of funny. Elevate. If some of y'all go to a church called Elevate, that's fine. It's good. Don't worry about it. Um, I just think church names are hysterical. Chapter 5 of the Confession. God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, all actions, and all things from the greatest to the least by His most holy and wise providence according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will for the purpose of the praise of his own glory and the glory of his wisdom and his power and his justice and his goodness and mercy. 
God's decorative will, his secret will, is everything that happens all the time. He is sovereignly powerful over all of it. God is not living contingent on our choices, thinking, I started this creation thing, Adam kind of messed it up, so I started this redemption thing, I'm going to give them some signs and kind of hope they work it out, and my plan for redemption kind of hinges on them. God's sovereign over it all the whole time. He's never wondering, he's never hoping that y'all are going to react, that we're going to react the right way, and it's, redemption's going to work out. He's sovereign over it all. Everything that happens is under his secret will. His eternal decrees for all his creatures and all their actions from the beginning of creation all the way through. This means one thing, very simply. God's in control of everything. <coughs> Nothing occurs outside of the purview of his providence. Nothing. And what you're thinking, and it's a good question to ask. Unfortunately, this isn't the right seminar for it. You're thinking, what about Adam's sin? That too. What about the crucifixion? That as well. And the awesome thing about God's goodness and His providence is that He's actually so good that He uses bad things for good. That's how good He is. That's how awesome His providence is. is He even used bad things for good. He uses the death of His Son to save the world. That's how awesome His goodness and His providence is. The Son of God is killed for being accused of being a heretical nutcase. Right? And God saves the world through the worst moment by humanity in history. His sovereign providence actually governs all things at all times. He's never absent. And you all have these philosophical quandaries about that right now, and that's not the purpose of the rest of this seminar. God's sovereign and secret will also is this. It's only known to Him. We know the circumstances around us and God allows us, we, we experience the circumstances of our own life. We anticipate things. And probably some of you knew I was going to go to this verse in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us and to our children forever, we do all of those. And they're called the words of His law. But guess what? Who this, guess who the secret things belong to? Not us. They're actually not our business. Now, some application points for that understanding and thinking about that version of God's will. First of all, is actually this what God has chosen not to show us is not our business. We don't like that because we're Americans and we have Wikipedia and we think we should have access to all knowledge at all times if we want it, right? What God chooses not to tell you is not your business. The secret things belong to him. What happened this morning, this is kind of a cheesy illustration, what happened this morning, the members of the Trinity got up and they had a cup of coffee and they had a staff meeting about how May, what's today, May 12th, and how it's going to go and what they had orchestrated for all the world events around the globe. And how they had planned it before time and how they're going to execute it today. That's what happened today when the Trinity were hanging out together this morning. Guess who wasn't allowed to the staff meeting? Any of us. What you don't know is not your business. Secondly, you can't stop it. And this is kind of what we talked about yesterday. Guess who can stop God's hand when He does something? No one. Guess who uses all things according to the counsel of His will? God. You can't stop it. You can't get out of it. But Job says, at the end of a very difficult couple of years... I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God has never been thwarted within His secret will. You can't stop it. You can't get out of it. I also want to talk about, okay, well then why does Scripture talk about His secret will? Because it does in places. One of the reasons it talks about His secret will, His providence over all creation, is first of all to induce humility. Romans 9 20. It makes us a little bit more humble to hear about. Verse 
You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Paul is addressing the issue of predestination, right? And Paul doesn't say, let me make it tasteful and reasonable for you, and let me show you how. This is what he says. You'll say to God, God, how can you find me responsible for what's your will? And this is what Paul says. Who are you to ask God that question? I was convicted when I read that verse because I always try to make predestination tasteful and want to argue, walk you through logically and kindly and pastorally. That's not Paul's approach. Paul's approach is, who are you? The reason I'm going to talk about God's secret will is to reveal to you, who are you to think you have access to it? It induces humility when the Bible talks about it. Ephesians 1.11, which we just read, it provokes praise. Right? This is cause for praise. That God is sovereign. That He's working all things, all things according to the counsel of His will. Romans 8.28, right before Paul's more kind of direct address. Many of y'all probably know it. We know, we read it yesterday, we know for those who love God, all things to work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. The Bible also talks about it to remind us of the indestructibility of God's love. And we need that. We need to be reminded of the indestructibility of God's love. Another place that talks about it, Psalm 2, verses 9 and 10. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Here's what he's saying. Sometimes it talks about God's revealed, or rather, secret will to tell God's enemies, you don't have a chance. We need that. We need to know that God's enemies won't prevail. When the God, Bible takes, talks about God's secret will, His sovereign plan for all of creation, it never addresses that doctrine for the purpose of saying, and here's how you find it out. It never says, here's a secret will, now here's how you find it out. It says, here's a secret will, that should make you humble. Here's a secret will that's cause for praise. Here's a secret will. Secret will that is cause for security. Here's the secret will. You need to know this because his enemies won't prevail. It is never regarded as a puzzle that's divinely created and you're obligated to figure out. It's never saying all these events, it's never implied you've got to find that out so you can accomplish it. If you're supposed to accomplish it, you will. If you're not supposed to, you won't. That's 100% guarantee. In the story of Jonah, right? God says, go to Nineveh and preach to these people. They're crazy. Jonah's like, no, I don't think so, because they're crazy. So he gets on a boat bound for Tarshish. God sends a fish to eat him and spit him up on the beach. Here's the interesting thing about it. Even Jonah trying to go to Tarshish was actually a part of his sovereign will. Even his rebellion was actually part of God's plan for the purpose of giving, one of the purposes at least, to give us that story. He couldn't get out. He couldn't go where God didn't want him to go. That's God's secret will, his decorative will, his plan. It's not our business. But it provides great comfort and assurance. You can't break that will. You can't get outside of it. Here's the will you can get outside of. God's revealed will. It's revealed by God. It's made known to us. Another thing we could call it is Scripture. And here's what Jesus tells the apostles as he's getting ready to go. This is my commandment that you love one another as I've loved you. Greater love is no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. And you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servant. The servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends because all that I have heard from my Father I have now made known to you. 
He makes it known to us. It's His will. His revealed will is the part of His will that we are allowed to know. And when we ask to know His and, and we should ask to know His will, and when we ask to know His will, He reveals it to us in Scripture. God's revealed will is, first of all, revealed by God. It's made known to us. Secondly, it's necessary for salvation. Psalm 19 talks about how we can learn a lot of things about God from nature, but the law of the Lord, the revealed will of the Lord, is perfect. It revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. Fear of the Lord is interesting. Right here it's being equated with His revealed will. Later we see it equated with wisdom. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. His revealed will gives life. And what we saw yesterday from 2 Timothy 3.16, His revealed will prepares us for every good work. It is what God has chosen to provide for His people for everything that all of us in 21st century America with a bajillion choices to make, He has given us everything we need for life and for faith. Here's the interesting thing. God gave us, what, anywhere from 1,000 to 2,000 pages of revealed will. Communicated some awesome things to us, right? He thought, Trinity's sitting around, right, making their plan. He thought it was more important for you to have the book of numbers in your hand than it was for him to tell you whether or not you should be political science or engineering. God thinks it's more important you know the book of Numbers. Because He gave you the book of Numbers, but guess what? He didn't tell you whether or not you're being an engineer or political scientist. God thought it was more important that you actually have the book of Leviticus than whether or not you should go to the lake with your long life friends or to the beach with your high school friends. Whether or not you should buy the Camry with 50,000 miles or the Accord with 65,000 miles. He thought, you know what? They actually need Leviticus more than that. And we hate numbers in Leviticus, right? When we start reading the Bible at the beginning of the year because we're so self-righteous in January and we get through Genesis because that's kind of exciting and Exodus, numbers in Leviticus kill us, right? God thought it was way more important that you have those books than telling you which, who you should room with next year. And the reason why it's more important is because Fight Club's a great movie. And when they talk about in Fight Club, in the long run, everyone's life expectancy zero. Everyone's life expectancy is zero. God's thinking about more important things than us. Everybody in here is dying. Y'all went to the dating seminar. I think Les talked about this yesterday. Guess what? Everybody's marriage in here is going to end either by divorce or death. Every one of your marriages will end. Are you preparing for that? The reason why is because our sin broke creation. And so you can freak out about moving to Charlotte or Chicago and get consumed with that and let that control you and steal rest from you at night. Or you can seek to have forgiveness. You can listen to the justification talks at night and have peace with God and resurrection life. Which one do you think is more important? So what's God's will for our lives? This is the grand summary. This is all your answers to your wildest questions. This is God's will for your life. Paul says it directly and clearly to you now. This is, this is 1 Thessalonians 4.3. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. You can't get any clearer than that. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. He spells it out further in chapter 5, verses 16 and following. Rejoice. This is the will of God for you. Sing tonight. Rejoice. This is the will of God for you. Pray a ton. 
Verse 18, give thanks in every circumstance. It's easy to give thanks in a lot of circumstances. It's really hard to give thanks in other ones. The will of God for you is to give thanks in all of them. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 Rejoice, pray, give thanks. This is the will of God for you. Micah 6.8 He has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord. And here's what I want you all to see. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you do. I'm not talking about moral or ethical issues. I'm talking about all the non-ethical issues we're considering in here. It doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you do it for. And that's actually what makes or breaks what you do. Colossians 1.9 And so, this is Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. And so from the day we heard, we haven't ceased to pray for you. We pray a ton for you. Asking, this is Paul's prayer for the church, that you would be filled with the knowledge of His will, which consists of spiritual wisdom and spiritual understanding. That is, Holy Spirit-given wisdom and Holy Spirit-given understanding. This is Paul's prayer. I hope that you grow in your knowledge of God, and this is what it is, Holy Spirit-given wisdom and Holy Spirit-given understanding. And... I suspect some of you all thought yesterday, like, I don't think Britain believes in the Holy Spirit. Right? He doesn't tell me. Yeah, I don't think he thinks the Holy Spirit talks to us. I absolutely do. And that's what we're talking about right here. Because what Paul is saying is, I pray and I pray that the Holy Spirit gives you Holy Spirit wisdom and Holy Spirit understanding. And Jesus explains the purpose of of sending the Holy Spirit in John 14, 26. He says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and remind you of everything that Jesus has said to you. 15, 26, When the Helper comes, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Jesus. John 16, 8, When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. 16, 14 through 15. He will glorify Jesus. He will take what is Jesus's and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Jesus's, and therefore, this is what Jesus says, I said that he, the Holy Spirit will take what is mine and declare it to you. What Jesus is saying is this. This is what the Holy Spirit does in your life. He communicates. He works in your life all the time. And the spiritual wisdom and understanding that He gives you is this. Knowledge belief and confirmation in all that Jesus has said and done. The Holy Spirit is always about Jesus. If you're wondering if it's the Holy Spirit, say, is it making me like Jesus more? Yes, that's the Holy Spirit. The knowledge of God's will is all about knowing, believing, trusting, obeying Jesus. The Spirit is absolutely at work revealing to God's children the will of God. And it is when you're convicted of sin, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit. When you're excited singing those songs at night because you're, Jesus is becoming sweet to you, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit. When you're just a little bit more patient, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit. It's a fruit of the Spirit. When you're a little bit more long-suffering, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit. When you're a little bit more joyful, when you're a little bit more comforted by the Gospel, guess what? That's the Holy Spirit. All because you're kind of a little bit more just into who Jesus is. That's the Holy Spirit revealing the will of God to you. Another great movie, The Princess Bride. And if you haven't read the book, change your life. It's, it's better than the movie. I know that's cliched. The book is just, it'll blow your mind. Anyways, if you're familiar with the story, at the beginning of the story, there's this farm boy and this girl who lives on the farm. And during the beginning of the story, she gives him all these demeaning tasks as a way of kind of poking fun at him. And it's really, it, it's more drawn out in the book 
But she gives him all these demeaning tasks about cleaning out stalls and things like that. And he only, he only always said one thing to her. He always said, as you wish. You want me to do that? As you wish. You want me to do that? As you wish. And the tasks just kind of get worse and worse and worse. And what she realizes later in the story is he was willing to do whatever. And what drove him to do it was not the task and whether or not he liked it. It was the person that he loved. Do you see? It actually doesn't matter what you do. What makes the things you do worthwhile is the person that you love when you do them. So just do whatever you want. It's the person that you love when you do them that's actually going to make or break those things. Do whatever you want. The will of God for you is to know Jesus' love for you and to love Jesus. And you can do that collecting garbage and you can do that making a million dollars a year as a lawyer. So do either one. You'll actually be just as happy in either way, which we don't believe because we still think money can make us happy, right? Because it can buy jet skis and you can never be unhappy on a jet ski, right? That's a lie. <laughs> That's from Daniel Tosh. I stole that. <laughs> What's going to make or break it is the person you love, the person you do it for. It's the person you do it for that makes it worthwhile and in a sense redeems what you do. If you want to be happy in your job, this is not really a guarantee you're going to be happy. It has way more to do with the person you do it for than the actual task itself. So do whatever you want. Now certainly there, okay, caveat, there are certain jobs you can't take. You cannot be in PR for Playboy magazine. There are certain unethical jobs, okay? If that's quite... If, that, if there's question, you should talk to somebody because sometimes there are gray areas. There are nurses and doctors who get into situations where they might have to perform a procedure that seems really immoral. Okay, that's tough. That's, we're not answering that today, but that's tough. You can't go take a job that requires you to disobey God. But I want you to see, it doesn't matter what you do. It matters who you do it for. Secondly, it doesn't matter what you do, but also how you do it. From the day we have heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will, which is Holy Spirit wisdom and Holy Spirit understanding, so as to walk for the purpose of walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in knowledge of God. The purpose, so it doesn't matter what you do, it matters how you do it, the purpose to live in His will is to walk honoring the Lord. The point in growing to know God's will is not this magic eight ball reveal your major, your spouse, your career, whether or not you should pledge, whatever. It's to shape you so that when you do any of those things, you do it in a way to glorify God, to honor Him. You do it hoping... And in so doing it, you bear fruit, becoming what humanity is supposed to be. Both, uh, Paul's both talking about the fruit of the Spirit here, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Guess what? You can do those in any career, and in any Christian marriage, and in any major. But also, when the Bible talks about bearing fruit, we're also getting echoes of Eden. Before sin, before brokenness came into the world, when God said, be fruitful and multiply, you see, when God's doing in His plan of redemption is He's restoring the world and He's restoring humanity to what it was supposed to be before sin messed it up. The character that we're supposed to live with is not hardline, overly conservative, Republican moralism. It's the description of the way the world is supposed to be. Following God's will means that in every good work, you do it the way you're supposed to. Whatever task is before you, you do it out of love for Jesus. You do it for joy in the gospel. You do it with peace because of His atoning work. You do it with patience for other broken people in light of the incredible patience He has with us. You do it for the purpose of increasing in knowledge with Him. Knowledge of Him. And that what's being depicted there is an ever-growing relationship, more intimacy. Paul's not talking about theological knowledge per se. He's talking about relational knowing. You know facts about your major. You know facts about historical figures. But you know your friends, right? In a, in a totally different kind of way. It's a very intimate knowing. It's a relational knowing. It's a knowledge that you grow in. 
I know my wife now better than I did five years ago. The purpose of knowing God's will is actually to grow in your knowing of Him. And also that you may be strengthened to endure with joy, enduring inevitable hard things. And this is an interesting purpose because what it recognizes is that you will, in fact, encounter difficult things that you won't be at peace about, right? That there's going to be chaos in your relationships, in your family, in your life. But as you understand God's will more and more, which is the saving work of Jesus and the incomprehensible grace He's shown us, everything you're learning about at night here, when you're learning about the resurrection and the new heavens and the new earth, you'll have a sure hope that's held out before you that gives you strength to walk through all sorts of really, really hard things that require a lot of weeping. And there will actually even be a sense of joy in those things. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. Having a grateful heart all along. God's will for your life is whatever you... It's really this. Do whatever you want. Do it. Room with you on room. Marry somebody you like. But do it bearing fruit, growing in Him, enduring with patience and giving thanks. It's not about what you do. It's about how you do it. People cite James 1.5 as one of our favorite verses. If any of you lacks wisdom, let, ask God, uh, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But people don't always turn to James 3.17 where he defines what that wisdom is. The wisdom from above is purity, and it's peace, and it's gentle, and it's open to reason, and it's full of mercy and good fruits. It's impartial, and it's sincere. That's what He's giving you when you ask for wisdom. Because the wisdom is not the wisdom to tell you what to do. It's the wisdom to tell you how to do it. That's because wisdom is not pieces of information. Wisdom is character. You can love Jesus in any career field. You can love Jesus with any spouse who also loves Jesus. You can love Jesus in virtually any major. You can love Jesus in any city. Guess what? You can love Jesus when a Republican's in the White House and when a Democrat's in the White House. You can love Jesus with any income. So do whatever you want to do wherever you want to do it. Seriously, you're free. You're free. Do whatever you want to do, wherever you want to do it. Enjoy it. Do something you like. And love Jesus. Still haven't answered your question, right? Oh, I came in here and I like this girl I've been dating for six months. I'm not sure what I should do. I haven't given you an answer. I want to make one quick cultural caveat. We think as Americans that having a ridiculous number of of options was going to improve our lives and psychologists now are saying no having to choose between a thousand majors actually makes your life worse because what happens is if there's a thousand and you have to choose one instead of having three different things that you could have chosen and panicking about those other three things guess how many you're panicking about now 999 actually making people more fearful and less committed Having all these, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, you can't really change that about culture, but I'm saying at least recognize the reason we have so much fear and possibly the reason Christians never even talked about this issue until the 20th century is actually because there used to just not be a lot of options. You couldn't move across the country. If you did, there's only a 30% chance you'd actually even get there. You couldn't take a job in L.A., if you did, your children would actually end up getting the job because they were five when they got there and you died halfway there. <laughs> we're panicking, actually, because we have too many choices. You can't change it. That's why I'm preaching the gospel to you because only Jesus is going to give you peace. So how do we make decisions? Here are the five secret steps, Right? The first one is this, repent. 
This is crucial to making your decisions. Repentance. If nothing else, this is the most important thing. Repentance is how you make decisions. Repent of the fact that we care more about whether or not we pledge 80 pi or tri delts. I don't have anything against 80 pies or tri delts. We need to repent of the fact that we care more about that decision than we care about the Lord of creation and the salvation of souls. Repentance. The call to repentance is not the mean side of the gospel. Sometimes we think it's that. It's the sweetest side of the gospel because it's God saying, Look, do you really, really think that that's going to fix it? That if you make the right decision here, that's going to fix it. Repentance is saying, God's saying, It's not going to fix it. Come, please see what I've done for you. Repentance is God trying to direct your attention away from our anxiety and our idols and direct our attention back to Him. Is God pleading with us to give us good things? Let me show you what I've done for you. Stop focusing on and finding your value in that. Do you see that your obsession about your job, our deep fear about our relationships reveals that we think it's our job that's going to give us peace and life? Repentance is actually Jesus calling us to respond to the justification talks all week. It's Jesus saying, come to me, let me show you what I have for you, how much I love you. And the way you start to love Jesus. See, if the love of Jesus is the key to making the right decisions, the way you start to love Him is knowing that He first loved us. Even the call to know God's will is rooted in this, His gracious love. Colossians Keep going back to that text. From the day we've heard, we pray for you to have God's will, to know it. Which means looking like you're walking in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing Him, bearing fruit, increasing knowledge. May you be strengthened with all power, enduring according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have the redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If you were in Stone's large group last night, he, his illustration for the sermon was he walked into a country club that he had no right to be in. It was illegal for him to be there. And he drew the ire of several people there. And he was qualified to receive all the benefits of that country club, he was qualified by nothing in himself but by Mike Hamilton saying, he's with me. I qualify him. My status is given to him. Jesus has, brothers and sisters, if you're in Jesus, he has delivered you from the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of Jesus. Our sin and in our selfishness, at that point we were children of the devil when those things defined us. Jesus delivered His people from the domain of rebels. Jesus did it. Do you see who the primary actor is? In Him we have the redemption and the forgiveness of our sins. Isn't it interesting that Paul ends his prayer for the church to know God's will? He ends that prayer in a glorious rehearsal of all the redeeming acts of Jesus. Repent. Repent. We all have to of freaking out about all these inane things before us and just rest. The call to love Jesus is the call to first go and see Romans 8, 35-39. This is the key to making your decisions. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who can do it? Can tribulation or distress or persecution, famine, nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 37, In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, not even death, nor life, not angels, not even angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You've got to make decisions by loving Jesus. The key to loving Jesus is coming to see first how much He's loved you. <clears throat> repentance is crucial for your decision making because the fruit of repentance is you start loving Jesus. And it's precisely loving Jesus that's actually going to be your guide into making decisions. This is how you make your major decision. I'm really serious. It's actually by loving Jesus. 
The more I learn to love my wife, this is true. Ask any husband. The more I learn to love my wife, the better I make decisions about long care. See, it's my relationship with her that allows me to make good decisions about long care, about insurance, about cable TV, all the little things of life. What makes me make good decisions is actually me loving her. What's going to help you make good decisions is not getting all the information, because guess what? You're not going to get it all. It's actually going to be you loving Jesus and knowing His love for you. Growing in love for Jesus is actually going to be what shapes and gives you the character trait of wisdom so that you'll make good choices. That's how you make good choices. Love Jesus. Application points, right? Repent. Seek to become wise. And here's, here, here's where I'm going to get the most concretely app- uh, uh, applicable. Read the Bible. Read the Bible. Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you receive my words, the Bible, treasure up my words, my, or rather my commandments, make your ear attentive to wisdom, inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord. You know what the fear of the Lord is? Wisdom. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. The Bible's view of decision-making about these issues is not that you remain the static, never-learning, never-growing into maturity person and you merely take a couple of directives and apply them to your life at certain times. Its view is that you grow closer to the Lord. And that's how you make decisions. As your character is more and more shaped by the Father's love for you, you actually become a wise and loving person. And in becoming a wise person, guess what kind of decisions wise people make? Wise decisions. It's the character trait of wisdom that allows them to make good decisions. Wisdom is not sign reading. Wisdom is a character trait. And it comes, one of the ways it comes, you need to repent. One of the ways it comes is by reading the Bible. You know, there's a wrong way to read the Bible and a right way to read the Bible. Here's what I don't mean. Here's the wrong way to read the Bible. Don't read the Bible thinking that if I read for seven hours this week instead of three, then God's going to like me more. That's a pathetic way to read someone's communication. What if Elizabeth wrote me a note and I read it not because I like Elizabeth, but I read it because I just know she would enjoy me reading it. And she would be, it would make her so happy that I read her note. That's a pathetic way to read your wife's note. Look, sweetheart, I read your note. Don't read the Bible to make God happy. Read the Bible for the same reason you read the text from your boyfriend and girlfriend, for the same reason I read a note from my wife. It's because I love her and her notes for me help me love her more and I just know her more deeply and our relationship gets further. You read people's communication that you like, not to please them, but to know them. Come to the Bible, not to please Jesus, but to find out who He is. That's how wisdom will begin to come in your life. Pray. Repent. Read the Bible. Pray. James 1.5, ask the Lord for wisdom. That is a call to prayer. And if you're thinking theologically through this, you're thinking, well, his first point was God sovereignly ordained all events. So is it still valuable to pray? But here's the point. God doesn't just ordain what happens. He also ordained the way it happens. He doesn't just ordain what happens, but the way it happens. Jesus tells us to pray. Christians, you are obligated to pray. Thy kingdom come. Is God's kingdom coming? Absolutely. You can't stop it. But God says, here's the way I want it to come. I want my people to pray it into being. I've ordained what's going to happen. I've also ordained the way it's going to happen. We pray for the same reason to make my little children say please. 
I buy him ice cream. I love it. It's fun. And I come home and I say, girls, daddy brought home a surprise for you. And they get excited. Give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, right? And I say, girls, say please. Was I absolutely, without a doubt, going to give them ice cream? Yes. There was no way I was not going to give them ice cream. But I wanted, to ask, I wanted them to ask me the right way. And here's why. Not because I'm mean. It's for the purpose of actually developing our relationship. The please is not about the ice cream. It's about me and her. God ordains what's going to happen, and he ordains how's it going to happen. And he says, you know what? I, wanted to pray, I want you to pray it into being, because that's going to affect the way we relate to each other. And I want to develop our relationship. It doesn't eliminate prayer. This view of decision-making actually makes prayer all the more necessary. God is going to execute his will, and the way he chooses to do it often is by having you pray for it. And the act of prayer does what we're saying is the heart of wisdom. It fundamentally develops your relationship with God. Repent. Read the Bible. Pray. Seek counsel. We're getting close to the end. Proverbs 12, 5. Proverbs 13, 14. Proverbs 15, 22. Proverbs 11, 11, 11, 14. All places in Scripture says, you know what? You need to talk to righteous people, and you need to talk to a lot of people when you make decisions, and that is good. Does that mean that all the advice you get is necessarily the best? Not necessarily, but it's better than not having any. Does it mean that having counsel from wise, multiple wise men is better? Yeah. It's better to have their input than to not. Here's the last point. Second last point. I'm going to get through here. Repent, read the Bible, pray, seek counsel, and then do what you want to do. Within the God, the mystical puzzle maker theology, where we've got to read all the signs, a lot of people, this is me, feel guilty for wanting something. Right? Oh, I want that, but I'm not sure if it's God's will for me. Listen, if you're beginning to love Jesus and he's shaping your character, guess what? You start wanting good things. You should absolutely do what you want to do. I'm not talking about immoral things and unethical things. I'm talking about the career choices. I'm talking about the non-ethical decisions. It's okay to like things, and it's okay to do what you want to do. It's actually right for you to do what you want to do. Jesus likes you. And he likes it when you enjoy his good creation. He gave it to you, and he likes it when you're appropriately happy. Jesus likes you. It's not wrong to want to date somebody. It's not wrong to want to get married. It's not wrong to want to go to Seattle to be a teacher. You can want those things. Do them. If you're not supposed to go, guess what? You won't get there. So don't worry about it. The more I love Elizabeth, the more I just naturally like things that are good for our marriage and our family. The more I'm transformed by our relationship, the more I just kind of organically and naturally, without even really knowing it, make better decisions when I buy clothes. Make better decisions when I think, do I want to fertilize the lawn or do I want to hire a service? It's my relationship with Elizabeth that helps me make good decisions. love for her that gives me wisdom. Do what you want. Love Jesus and do what you want. And this is my final caveat. That doesn't mean it won't be hard. You might, odds are in a room this size, you might want, someone in here is going to marry a wonderful Christian guy or girl. Not more than one person. You're in, somebody in this room is going to marry a wonderful Christian guy or girl with tons of character who loves Jesus and there's no promise that something horrible might happen early in your marriage, that that one of y'all might contract a terminal illness, that you might be in a car accident, that you might have a miscarriage, that you might have a child with Down syndrome. You can do all of these things, and that is no guarantee that that won't happen. 
There's no formula, foolproof formula that guarantees life's going to be easy. And in fact, if you read the Bible, Jesus promises there will be persecution for his people. There's no guarantee that if you prayerfully power, uh, prayerfully consider a job in a roommate situation, that if you repent, that if you seek Jesus, that if you rest in his sweet mercy, and you start to like him a lot, and then make a decision, there's no guarantee that your work environment won't be hard, or that your company won't go under, or that your roommate situation won't be horrendous. And see, that's what we really want, and that's why we're still disappointed with the seminar part of us. Because we want that guarantee. God, here's God's estimation of Job. This is what God says about him. God says, there is none like him. God says this about Job, Job's best moment. He is blameless, and he is upright, and he fears the Lord. Fear the Lord, wisdom, same thing in the Bible. God said Job is wise. That's high praise from a big dude. That's God's assessment of Job. This is what happens to Job. Meaning, Job did it all right. He loses everything. He was wealthy. He lost all of it. Every penny. He had children. My biggest fear in life now, it's not y'all's, you'll remember this one day, my biggest fear in life now is to watch a child die. I pray that Jesus will kill me before my children die. He lost all his children before his eyes. And then lastly... He lost his health. And the end of that story, the end of kind of him losing everything is Job 2.8 where he's described as sitting in dust and ashes and he has a broken shard from a pot and he's scratching the sores on his body. Here's the guy. Repented. Prayed. Read the Bible. Sought counsel. Here's where he is. Had it all. Has nothing. If you read Psalm 73, it's a very interesting psalm. This guy gets up and... Uh, this, it's a psalm where somebody prays, God, I look at all the people that don't care about you and they have tons of stuff and they're happy all the time. What's the deal? That's the psalm. This is the guarantee that God does make regarding your decisions in this life. They may be hard. There might be death. There might be unemployment. There might be physical illness and difficult work environments. Here's what the Lord says in Romans 8.28. He's working all things together for the good of those who love Him. When people talk about using James as a place to ask for wisdom, they're right. But you've got to read the verses before James 1.5. Count it, not mostly joy, eventually joy, one day joy, some joy. Count it pure joy, brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." The campus minister from Nebraska was a friend of mine. He had a little girl three and a half years ago named Amelia. Five months after she was born, she contracted leukemia. While she was receiving chemo because her immune system was down, she caught an infection from another virus. It went to her brain and destroyed most of her brain. I was just talking to him right beforehand. And two months ago, she's three and a half years old, they connected her to one of these electronic communication devices. She can't type. She can't see. She can barely moves. She doesn't have any muscular, uh, any, any muscle function, very little nervous function, all that kind of stuff. They've been waiting for three and a half years for their little daughter to tap her head on the side of her wheelchair. And for the first time at her, she communicated to her parents. And it's a little button she taps that says, I'm hungry. It's waited three and a half years. And you know what? It's probably as good as it's going to get for them. But here's what the blessing that God has given Stephen Jen. You know who's way more excited about the resurrection than anybody else here? Stephen, Jen, and Amelia. It's hard. And there are a lot of tears. Man, they're fired up about the resurrection. In a weird way, God is good. See... God's actually preparing for us for the resurrection. That's why it's going to be hard. Because guess who doesn't sit at the center of the new heavens and the new earth? Me. Guess who does sit at the center of the new heavens and the new earth? God. And He's preparing us for a world 
where we're no longer fascinated with and consumed with ourselves all the time, but a world in which we're going to be consumed with and fascinated by Him at all times. And you see, if He doesn't pry the things from our hands that compete with our love for Him, if He doesn't pry away our counterfeit loves, you know what? We actually wouldn't like the new heavens and the new earth. This is His promise for you if you seek wisdom. If you by faith receive Jesus' love and His justifying worth, and by faith grow in love for Him, here is the promise. And it's way better than the promise of a big paycheck. Revelation 21. John's getting a glimpse. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, that is the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, this, the people of God, is the dwelling place of God. The dwelling place is with man. He, dwell, he will dwell with them. They will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. Here's your promise. He will wipe away every tear. Neither shall there be mourning, There shall be no crying. There shall be no pain. The former things will have passed away completely forever. That's the will of God for you. Let's pray. (coughs) Lord, I thank you that you choose to not answer so many questions that we have. And I pray that those questions that distract us would not always get in the way, dear Lord that we would see you seated on the throne in heaven as John saw you in Revelation. And we see that our will, your will for us is to be there with you. And I pray that it would become more clear for us. And in the midst of the confusion of this life, it would make decisions easier for us. In your name we pray. Amen.